today. Isn't it wonderful to be together as God's people? Amen. Uh, we've been in a series in the book of Philippians, and um, I was thinking today would be our last day. I told you that last week, um, but maybe we got one more week. I don't know. There's some good stuff I've even skipped over that I thought about going back to. I don't know. Y'all enjoyed the book of Philippians and Paul's? Yeah, it's been great. It really has been. There's so much rich material in there, so much instructive for life, so much inspiring for our everyday, and so I hope that you've um, been able to uh, soak that in as well as I have. Um, so Philippians chapter 4 is where we're at. We're going to be reading here in just a moment, verses 10 through 13. Um, just a couple of words of introduction about today. I want to give you a quick outline on how I'm going to proceed here. I'm going to ask, ask and answer three questions, and the first of those questions is, what is biblical contentment? What are we talking about? And we talk about this topic of contentment because that's where Paul's at today. And so uh, Paul will instruct us on what biblical contentment looks like, maybe a di- little bit different than what we think about it in a worldly sense. And then also, why is it important? Why is biblical contentment something that I should care about for my own life? Um, and then finally, what's the secret uh, to being content? How do I adopt this concept uh, into my own life? How can I become a person who is content? So that's where we're going today. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can uh, follow on there or follow along on the screen. Let's stand and read together from God's Word, Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. Here we go. Paul writes, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You may be seated. All right, so I just want to walk into these verses together. Um, We'll start at verse 10. Let's take a look at what Paul says here. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Let's stop right there. What is Paul saying here in this verse? Well, he's thanking the church in Philippi, for a gift that they had just brought to him. There's a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. He shows up, I believe it's in chapter 2, and Epaphroditus had been sick for a little while while he was there with Paul, but he had brought a gift from the church in Philippi, and then Paul had written this letter to the Philippians, and then Epaphroditus from that church was on his way back to Philippi to deliver this letter that they would have read that we're studying here together these past weeks. And so um, Epaphroditus had brought this gift in order to help pay for Paul's supplies while he was in prison under house arrest in Rome. So he had to pay for an apartment, he had to pay for provisions, all this he had to support for himself. Otherwise he would have been put in, the, uh, in, in jail uh, and he didn't want to be down there in the cellar uh, in the jail and experience all that. So um, he had provisions that were sent from the church in Philippi to help support him. So he's thanking the church for those provisions uh, on his behalf. And so Paul used a very beautiful word here in the Greek, anathalete, and it means to flourish, to spring up, this idea they had revived their concern for him, kind of like the daisies in the springtime that pop up out of the ground. Paul's saying that's kind of how your generosity has just sprung up out of the ground and it's been revived, and so I've appreciated that so much. Now there's a phrase in that sentence that may throw some of us, it threw me a little bit as to what does Paul mean here? What is he saying? Because he uses the phrase at length. He says, um, or in some translations it says, at last you have revived your concern for me. It almost sounds like in a way Paul is offering a rebuke to the church in Philippi that finally I've gotten your gift. You know, it's about time 
that, I find that this gift has come along. And so we kind of read that, and I'm thinking, well, it doesn't sound real nice to Paul here. It doesn't sound like he's being real kind to these folks. Um, but that's not what's happening. Let's look at the second half of verse 10, and we kind of understand what the, what's happening. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He said, you are indeed concerned for me. Paul knows that the church in Philippi has been concerned for him. This is not the first gift that they've sent him to help support him in his ministry. They've done this multiple times. He says, but you have had no opportunity. See, the apostle Paul is very aware of the fact that he's been in jail for over the last year, uh, that he's been imprisoned in Jerusalem, and then he was sent to Caesarea Philippi to to be, uh, have trial there, and then they were sent back to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem, he sent on across the Mediterranean Sea, on his, on his uh, voyage across the Mediterranean Sea, because he made an appeal to Caesar, he was on his way to Rome, well, on his way to Rome, he was shipwrecked, and then he was on the island of Mylita, and he was there for a month, maybe more, until there was a ship that came and landed on the shores and found them on this um, abandoned island, and so then he was brought from that island to Rome where he could then stand trial before Caesar. And then a letter had to be sent from Rome to the church in Philippi for them to find out that Paul had been in prison. And so the itinerary of this guy has been all over the place. Nobody could predict where Paul was. And so he's saying, you've had no opportunity. You see that in verse 10. You've had no opportunity to send me anything because nobody knew where I was. In fact, I kind of fell off the radar screen completely. Uh, nobody knew what had happened to me. So this letter gets sent or notice gets sent back to Philippi that Paul's okay. He's in prison now. He's finally gotten to where he's going to go. And then they send a gift to help support Paul. And so Paul is recognizing that here in this verse, that at length, it's been a while since y'all have been able to send me a gift. He's just merely recognizing that. Verse 11. Here Paul makes, um, for me, what I believe to be one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. He says, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. In other words, I didn't ask for you all to give me this gift. I'm grateful for it. He expresses his gratitude. But he says, this is not something that I warrant, that I asked for, that I um, requested. Um, it's, you gave it freely. You gave it generously. You gave it liberally. I'd, I'd been okay if I'd not gotten your gift. I'd been out of my house imprisonment and in the jail uh, with, their, with, with the others. And, but that would have been okay. You know, God would have provided for me. He says, and then here's the statement. He says, for I have learned in whatever situation I find myself, I am to be content. I don't know about you. That's a pretty remarkable statement. In whatever situation... He says, I am to be content. And then he kind of uh, adds a little bit more to what he means in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. I've been there before. He says, and I know how to abound. I've had everything that I needed. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Notice the contrast here, both sides of the spectrum. He said, I've been in situations where... I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. I've been in situations where I had everything I needed, provisions for the next six months. He says, I've been in both those situations. I've had abundance and I've had need. What Paul is telling us here in this verse is that contentment is not a product of what you have. Contentment, rather, is a product of your perspective. You see, we tend to think that if I'm poor, I can't be content until I have what people who aren't poor have. That if I could get the stuff that non-poor people have, then I would be content. Like if I could win the lottery, right? Then, okay, I would have contentment in my life and in my heart, and I'd be fine. I'd be good to go, and I would, I would never want any more. I would never ask God for anything more. So if I could have more stuff, the stuff that I need, that I think I need, then I would be content. So we think about contentment as a product of what we have. 
Let me tell you something. According to the Apostle Paul and according to the Scriptures here, that is a lie. Friends, it will not be any easier to be content with a million dollars as it will be with ten bucks. That's what Paul's saying. Paul says, I needed contentment not only when I was brought low, not only when I was hungry, not only when I was need, but I also needed contentment when I had abundance, when I had plenty, when I had all of my needs provided for. He said, I needed to experience contentment in my heart in those situations as well. Paul says that contentment is for rich people and poor people alike. He says that both of them need it. And it's not based on what you have or what you do not have, but that True contentment, true biblical contentment comes in whatever state that you're in in that moment and that it is based on something that transcends whether or not you have a lot or whether or not you have little. You see, friends, contentment is an attitude. It's not about what you have. It's a perspective of life. It's an outlook, how you view your situation in life. It's a perspective that Jesus Christ is in absolute control of all that you have. That if Jesus Christ is in control of everything and that I have what I have because Jesus Christ is in control and ordained that this is what I'm supposed to have, right? If God's, you follow my logic here, if God's in control and I have what I have, then God saw fit for me to have this stuff. And that's true biblical contentment is to say, you know what? What I got is what God saw fit for me to have. And contentment recognizes that. It's not a matter of how much money I have, how many cars I have, how many homes I have, whatever it may be. It's a recognition that Jesus Christ is in full control of what I have. And if God wanted us to have more, then he'd give us more. If God wanted you to have a promotion, then he'd give you a promotion. If God wanted you to have a raise, he'd make sure that you got a raise. If God wanted to make sure that you had a new job, he'd give you that. Friends, he'd give you whatever it was that he deemed that you needed. And listen, if God wanted you to have less, God would take it all away. Don't think he couldn't right? God could just as well send you an illness. God could just as well send you some repair bills, and you can watch things just go down in your bank account. It's the perspective that God is in sovereign control of what you have right now in this minute and being content, therefore, with what I have because God gave me what I got. Now, I don't know if you struggle with this, but I do I mean, I got good days and I got bad days. Sometimes my bad days, I'm looking around at what some other people have, and I think, you know what, God, it'd really be nice if I had that. I mean, I would really enjoy that. It might raise my level of contentment, God. I don't know if y'all ever struggle like that, but I sure do struggle like that. Um, Anyhow, we all have moments like that, and it's called being human. And yet here Paul saying, I have learned that wherever I am, in whatever situation I find myself, with whatever supplies I've got, to be content, to be able to rest in the sovereign hand of God, that God has given me what he thinks that I need and no more and no less, and then what is best for me. I think about people like Solomon and David and Abraham. Think about this. These guys were fabulously wealthy. I mean, if you look at 2000 BC and what other people had when you read through scriptures and you read through um, and things of antiquity, Abraham had a lot. Abraham was very wealthy. For his day, all the flocks that he had, the herds that he had, the land that he possessed, Abraham had all kinds of wealth. He would have been considered by standards in 2000 BC as a very wealthy man. And then I compare that with guys like John the Baptist and the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Elijah, who are as poor as dirt, right? John the Baptist ate bugs for dinner. 
and he ate wild honey, and he walked around with, with skins of animals on. And I look at the Lord Jesus, who said he had no place to lay his head. He lived off of the kindness of people to give him food to eat during his three years of public ministry. And so why did God make Jesus and John the Baptist suffer with so little, and yet guys like David and Abraham have such plenty? Friends, it's because God had a sovereign plan for each of their lives, that he had deemed at that moment in their life that this is what they were supposed to have. And I believe that true contentment does not question the plan of God. It does not question the lordship of Jesus Christ. It accepts our circumstances as God's plan and God's purpose right this minute as what's best for us. Now, the wheels are turning. I know some of y'all are thinking something. And you're thinking, Gordon, are you saying, I, every time I talk about this topic matter, somebody comes up to me afterwards and they're like, hey, so I thought they got this question. And so I thought I'd go ahead and ask, answer the question or ask the question and answer it now to, to save you the, the thought. So I know the question that some of you are asking is, it sounds almost like, Gordon, you're saying that to be truly biblical content, that I have to be happy with what I got, satisfied with what I got, and asking for no more. And so are you saying that it's wrong for me to want to strive for more? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that it's sinful to want to be more successful and to want to do better and have more? And friends, the answer to that question is an unequivocal no. No, not at all. Um, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. However, it becomes wrong when we respond in bitterness to God because of the things that we don't have. That's when it becomes wrong. That's where sin enters the picture. I'm sure that Paul would have liked to have had a warm bed. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul would have liked to not be in jail. And I'm sure that he requested of God that those things would be the case, right? God, I'd like to not be in jail tonight. God, I'd like to have food to eat tonight. And he asked God for those things. And it was not wrong for him to ask God for those things. But when it would become wrong is when the Apostle Paul would say, God, I'm mad at you. I'm bitter towards you because you have not provided those things for me. Instead, the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, there's nothing wrong with working to get ahead. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a success. That is admirable. I love John Wesley, who said that we're supposed to work all that we can, save all that we can, and give all that we can. John Wesley understood that we're to strive, that we're to want to succeed, we're wanted to do more. But contentment comes in when we are willing to accept the results of all of our hard work, even if it doesn't meet up with the standards that we had set for ourselves. And contentment says, God, I'm working as hard as I know. I'm giving all that I've got to give. And you know, God, I like nice things. I mean, God, I've been looking at that car, that, driving past that lot every day, and I would just love to get that. And God, I love this new chair in that room over there, and I'd love to have the new drapes, and I'd love to have that outfit, right? That new outfit that I've been looking for, God. But God, if you deem that it's not for me to have at this moment in time, God, I'm content, and I'll accept it. It's okay, because that's your plan for me right now. Resting in the sovereign plan of God for your life at every moment, at every point. And so that's what contentment is, and that's how we define it biblically. But then we also want to ask the question, you know, why is this important? Why should I want to be a person who is content? Like, I can see some value there, but, you know, let's unpack that a little bit more. 
Well, if you have your Bibles or you can follow along in the screen, I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul talks a little bit more on this subject of contentment there as he's writing this letter to Timothy. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. I'll read several verses here. He says, verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Paul there is talking about where we put our treasures, right? That we don't want to put our treasures here on this earth. Everything in this earth is only temporary. One of these days, we're all going to pass from this earth, and we're going to go on to be with the Lord in heaven for eternity. And so we want to store up our treasures in heaven. That's what Paul's referring to there. Verse 8, he says, But if we have food and clothing with, with these, we will be content. And here comes the danger of not being content. He says, verse 9, But those who desire to be rich, these people fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and they plunge people into ruin and destruction. Last verse, verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs, or as some translations say, many sorrows. Friends, these are solemn words. If I could, uh, it's a word of warning. It's a word of caution that Paul shares here. And if I could summarize these words up, it would be this, that when we're willing to disobey God in order to get things that we do not have, Paul says, watch out. And we're willing to lie. We're willing to steal. We're willing to cheat. We're willing to disobey God's commands and his rules for our holy conduct in order to obtain things. When we're willing to walk away from a calling that God has placed on our life, we're willing to walk away from service that God has called us to, that he's given us hands and feet and and resources and material, and we're willing to walk away from that stuff, friends, and and we're willing to compromise on family and duty in order to chase another dollar. Friends, Paul is sharing with us a word of warning. He says there is danger in that. Warning those of us who want to be rich and to apply that principle more broadly. Warning any of us who want something material that God hasn't seen fit for us to have. Warning us about craving something so much that we're willing to sin to go get it. Paul says, watch out. Many Bible-believing Christians, he says, have fallen away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today, or these texts for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask the question that we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, I just thought of this for a second. I shared this with, with I don't know why, but I shared this with a group downstairs. Last night, when we got done trick-or-treating, it sounded like my house was coming down (laughs) because there was so much sugar running through my kids, and the house was just about ready to fall down. I don't know about y'all, but we had a fun time trick-or-treating, but what a sugar rush that was. Um, I I I finally just said, "Ah, I'm going to bed, I'm going to sleep. But I hope y'all had a good night last night and enjoyed that time together with your family. But back to the sermon. I don't know why I shared that, but anyway. They say, Gordon, I get the greed, I get the envy, these sorts of things are not the way that I, you know, I need to behave. I get that contentment is something that I need in my life, but I, I mean, how am I supposed to do this, right? What, what's the secret here to being content? How can I bring this, this virtue into my own everyday experience? What difference does any of this make to me? Well, let's talk about that. You see, the answer to the question, how do I live this way, Paul tells us, it starts in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to bound. Again, the, the, the two sides of the spectrum. I know what it is to be in want, and I know what it is to be uh, with plenty. He says, I've learned the secret, the secret of facing hunger and plenty, abundance and need. And what's the secret? How do you live like this? 
Remember, contentment's not about what you have. It's a perspective in life. He says, here's the secret, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. That's the secret. I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. Because Jesus Christ was at the center of Paul's life. Because Jesus Christ was the joy of Paul's life in every situation. It didn't matter what life presented to the Apostle Paul. He could be content. Paul learned to focus on Jesus, not on his circumstances, not on what he didn't have, nor on what he did have, but rather on Jesus. And because that perspective, Paul had that perspective, he was able to transcend his circumstances. You know, as I was preparing this week, I began thinking about, well, why is it? One of the things that is common to human experience is that we want more. We want more money. Why do we want more money? I started thinking about that. Why do we want more money? And so I came up with a couple of reasons why people want more money. Here's, see if any of these, if you can relate to any of these. Number one is we want more money because, you know, if we had $50,000 sitting in the bank, it would provide a certain level of security. Money does, right? It's nice to have that, what is it Dave Ramsey calls it, the emergency fund, right? It's nice to have an emergency fund. It's kind of a, an insulator or a buffer, if you would, against your washing machine going down or against the transmission going out in the car or some sort of illness hitting you and you know, having some medical bills that you've got to take care of. Well, it's nice to have some emergency fund there, and it serves as kind of a security against things that are you know, happening in life. But it's more than that. Money is also a defense. I mean, if you have $50,000 in the bank, if somebody comes after you or was trying to get at you, you know, $50,000 in the bank can mount a pretty good defense against somebody trying to mess with you. Again, it's an insulator, money is, against things going wrong. Money gives us confidence that we can provide for ourselves. And we have to look to other people or other situations in order to provide for ourselves. And so I have some confidence going forward into each day that I can provide for myself. And then to some degree, I think money gives us joy. Why do we want more money? Because it's fun, right? Get to go places, buy stuff. It's exciting because I think it, because money can buy things for us. Now, what I want to say to you is this, that the secret to Paul's life was that Jesus Christ was his security. Not $50,000 in the bank. That Jesus Christ was his defense. That Jesus Christ was the insulator for the Apostle Paul against the unexpected things in life, that Jesus Christ was the buffer in Paul's life against things happening, that Jesus Christ was his confidence to face a new day, that Jesus Christ was his joy, that Jesus Christ was his excitement. That's the difference. That's why Paul didn't need more money, because Paul had a higher source than $50,000 in the bank. He had Jesus. How did Paul get to that point? He tells us back in verse 11, he says, I have learned. See, contentment's not something we're born with. You don't see somebody who's content and go, well, I guess, you know, they've been that way since they were born. You know, no, that's not it at all. We're none of us, are, we're all dealing with human nature. Contentment is not something that just comes natural to us. Paul had to learn this. The Word of God says, Proverbs 27 and verse 20, just an observation of human life that the eyes of man are never satisfied. Uh, one time, John D. Rockefeller, y'all know who John D. Rockefeller was. He owned Standard Oil and made more money than the federal government. Um, he was literally had more money coming in the federal government. I don't know about today, but back then, anyhow. And so um, he was a big shot, right? He was super uber wealthy. And one time, a reporter asked him, and I thought it was a great question. They asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? How much is enough? I mean, at some point, you, own, you have more money than the federal government. 
right? And, and, and you, t- you keep taking over businesses and more businesses and you absorb them and you squash them and you put them out of business so that you can make more money. At what point? I didn't know if it was a critical question or if it was just an observation question. I don't know. And so Mr. Rockefeller, upon hearing that, just kind of looks down and he thinks to himself, and he thinks to himself, and he finally looked up to the, to the a reporter and he says, just a little bit more than I have. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more than I have. Friends, isn't that the flesh? I mean, that, that, that's the flesh talking there. Um, I don't care if you have a big house and you got all your bills paid and you got all the money that you need in the bank. How much money is enough for most? Just a little bit more. All of us are that way, and that's the flesh. The flesh can't think about things any other way, and left to itself, it will always want more and more and more. I mean, why couldn't a guy like Rockefeller say, you know what, I'm just going to sell off my businesses, I'm going to liquidate everything, and I'm just going to retire? Sounds good to me, right? Was that what, if you had like umpteen billion dollars in the bank? Probably. I don't think you'd be still going to work every day, right? Kim said no. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that's what we're working for, right? Working toward retirement, working toward time in our life. We can kind of take things a little bit more easy, rest, relax a little bit more. And this guy had the opportunity to do that, but he kept at it. He kept at it. Again, because the eyes of man are never satisfied. What I'm saying to you, friends, is that true contentment has to be learned. God has to teach us contentment. And you know how he taught it to Paul? He taught it to Paul through poverty. He taught it to Paul through adversity. He let Paul be threatened, and then he saved him. He let Paul be shipwrecked, and then he delivered him. He let Paul go hungry, and then he provided for him. He let Paul be thrown in jail, and then he rescued him. He let Paul run out of money, and then he sent him some. God let all of that happen to Paul to teach Paul a lesson, to teach Paul contentment, how to be content. Friends, of all the things in life to learn, that's the main thing God wants to teach us. That's the main goal, to teach us how to live by faith in Him and not by sight. It's a hard lesson because we would much rather trust in what we can see. We'd much rather trust in what we can taste. We'd much rather trust in what we can feel and touch. Those things, you know, it's tangible stuff. And it's easier to trust in those things. It's not as scary when we've got those things around us. And that's why God sometimes has to let us struggle financially and end up in crises in our life because we will never learn that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. That's human nature. And our flesh doesn't like that any more than I like eating vegetables as a kid. But my mom knew better than I did. And she had a rule that you don't get it from the table till you got your veggies eaten or you've eaten all your fruit or whatever it was she put on the table that was, had the vitamins in it that night because she knew what was best for me. And God just the same knows what's best for us. And sometimes he puts us through times of struggle financially in order to teach us this lesson that God is all we need. Let me wrap up. God said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1, Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your very great reward. Now, besides God entering into covenant here, we're cutting some steps of covenant here. Besides that, I think God was wanting to communicate a message to Abraham that sometimes we miss, and that is that God is our 
reward. He said, Abraham, I am your reward. You know, lots of times we want to think about God as the rewarder. God says, that's not who I am. I am your reward. But did you know that God says that the greatest reward that he can give us is himself? It's not about the things that he can give us. It's about giving us a relationship with him. And I believe the secret to contentment, friends, is to master this perspective that Jesus Christ is all the reward I need. With that kind of perspective, friends, we can give to the work of God without fear of the future. We can have, with that kind of perspective, we can share liberally and freely with others. With that kind of perspective, we can stand for what's right in our job, even if it means that we might lose our job because we've stood up for what's right, because the God whom we serve, who's in sovereign control, will make sure that you get a better job, perhaps even, certainly another job, because you stood up for what's right. With that kind of perspective, we can handle money correctly by not becoming a slave to it, but rather by being its master. And with that kind of perspective, we can have contentment right where we are and be filled with the joy of the Lord, no matter our circumstances. You know, many people in our country, I know we're open back up and the economy's moving and all that kind of stuff, but many people in our country are struggling financially right now. Many people are. Uncertainty continues to dominate their days. Friends, I plead with you to consider that maybe God is trying to give you a greater blessing by leading you to more of himself. That in this time of uncertainty, he's bringing you, calling you to your knees because you're learning. I don't have anything else but Jesus is all that I need. Listen, God knows what he's doing, friends. God knows what he's doing. And the blessing will come if we'll just learn to rest in him and what he has for us. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says these words, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. All right, what did we learn today? We learned that contentment, true biblical contentment, as a perspective, it's not about what you have or don't have. It's about a perspective, realizing that God is all that we need and that he is in complete control of our lives. That right now we have everything that God wants for us to have right now. And number two, we learn to beware of joining the grass is greener club, always wanting something more and different because of the danger of that kind of an attitude. And finally, number three, we've learned that the secret to contentment is to learn to see God himself as our reward, that he is all we need. Friends, the less we seek God as the rewarder, and the more we see God himself as our reward, we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We thank you for this healthy life-giving perspective. Lord, that we don't have to clutch hold of the things of this world in order to find security, but rather, Lord, we just have to clutch hold of you. Lord, that you will provide. You are the God of the universe. 
And Lord, you have the resources of heaven at your disposal. So Lord, may we this morning be challenged to trust more deeply in you. May we strive, Lord, to want to know you, Christ. God, we just submit ourselves, our finances, our futures. We place it all in your capable hands. We trust, Lord, that you are in control of all things. Lord, you're working out a perfect plan for our life. We serve you, Lord. We submit ourselves to you. Lord, in this time of communion this morning, if some of us, God, just need to let go of some stuff that we've been holding on to and finding security in, Lord, may we surrender that over to you. Lord, if some of us have worry in our life because the future is uncertainty, may we rest in your promise. May we trust deeply in you, knowing, God, that you're giving us the greater blessing of yourself. Lord, we commend this time to you. We invite your Holy Spirit to stir and encourage and challenge us where need be. We submit this to you in Christ's holy name. Amen. We invite you now to share in the communion elements that are seated there in front of you. And uh, we'll have a time of communion and then we'll share in a time of singing.